Well, I am so pleased to have the opportunity to be with you and to share with you today. This is actually only my second time to be a part of worship at Mount Perry North Canton. I was here last year over a holiday weekend. I don't remember which one it was, but almost none of you were here. So I have not gotten an opportunity to meet most of you. Uh, and, and might I just say, like, what an exciting time for this church for this body as you morph into the Canton Church very soon with your own dedicated space. It's just amazing to see what God has done under the leadership of Pastor Jeremy, the elders here, the staff, and I know we are only on the precipice looking over. Uh, We are just at the forefront and the beginning of what God is going to do in this ministry. Well, this week we're going to continue in our series entitled Come to the Table, and what an appropriate time of year on the Christian calendar to be looking at the sacrament of Christian communion, because in just a few days, we're going to be entering into Holy Week in which we celebrate the actual moment when Jesus first gave to the Christian community what we call the Lord's Supper. I listened to Pastor Jeremy's beautiful message last week, and I think uh, he hit the nail on the head. Communion is not just some sort of empty ritual. Unfortunately, Christians have been fighting for centuries over exactly what communion means and exactly what it's all about and who gets to take it and who is excluded. And we've missed the point that communion is an invitation from Jesus to us to come to his table and to be transformed by the power of his love. I want to take you to a passage of scripture this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this scripture is so meaningful and so significant because it is the first written record of the communion ceremony. Sometimes it's a little surprising uh, to know that the Gospels are written after the letters of Paul in 1 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul. It's the first earliest snapshot we get of the way early Christians were coming together to celebrate the sacrament of of communion. And it's extremely dysfunctional, which always makes me feel better as a Christian. They were getting it all wrong. And the major principle that they were blowing, that they were missing in this ancient Christian community of Corinth was quite simple. They were missing the point that the cross creates communities. So I'm going to read it from the screen here, starting um, on down, I believe it's verse 17 through 29, something like that. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to this ancient church in Corinth. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. This is sarcasm here, I think. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So this is a divided church. The Christians are meeting in various homes, and occasionally they come together for a large worship gathering and celebrate communion, only the divisions among them are very evident. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. By that, Paul means I'm passing on ancient Christian tradition that comes from Jesus himself. This letter is written perhaps 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So this is fresh history in the early church. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. And that matters. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, which is the church, which is us, eats and drinks judgment on himself. In 1955, a leading medical doctor and medical researcher at the University of Oklahoma named Dr. Stuart Wolf became fascinated with a little town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. The name of the town was actually taken from a town in Italy where many of the residents of Rosetto, Pennsylvania had immigrated from over the generations as they had passed on. Dr. Wolf became fascinated with this town when his interaction with the local physician of Rosetto revealed that there were almost zero instances of heart attacks or heart disease in the entire town and in the entire history of the town of Rosetto. This was fascinating to Dr. Wolf because back in the 1950s, the entire medical establishment was really arming itself to fight against heart disease as it had risen to become the leading cause of death in America, the first cholesterol-lowering drugs, which we're all used to now. They were first hitting the market. And yet, this entire town of Rosetto seemed to be dodging the disease, all the while men in the surrounding towns, even in Pennsylvania, were suffering from heart attacks and heart disease at younger and younger ages. So Dr. Wolf mobilized his entire team to go to Rosetto and to try to figure out what's going on. How could there be no record of heart attacks or heart disease in this entire town? So his team began to pour through genealogies and death records. And what they realized is no one had ever shown any symptoms of heart disease before the age of 55, which was very rare. And death by all causes in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, was 35% lower than that of the rest of the nation. It seemed that in this town of Rosetto, Pennsylvania, people only died of old age. That's it. It was fascinating. So assuming it was because they must have had a superior diet, they began to study every aspect of physical health among the Rosetto people in Pennsylvania. What they found shocked them. It surprised them. They found that 41% of the average Rosetta's diet came from saturated fat. That's not a good thing at all. It's like eating at McDonald's most of your meals. Not, not healthy. Not healthy. Not only this, but very few of the Rosetta people exercise with any uh, structure or with any regularity beyond you know, walking about in the town. Most of the adults, this was the 1950s, so most of the adults smoked heavily, and many of them struggled with obesity. Obviously, this didn't add up to Dr. Wolf or any of his team. They were fascinated by this lack of connection between the cause and the effect of the Rosetta cell. So they called the sociology department of the University of Oklahoma and got them involved. All these sociologists came to this town trying to figure out what made them so healthy. The sociologists were equally shocked by what they found. They found that there had never been a suicide in Rosetto, Pennsylvania. They found uh, that... Um, there had never been any cases of alcoholism or ulcers. Uh, simply all of these things that you were seeing plaguing the rest of the nation, both societally and physiologically, did not exist in the town of Rosetta, Pennsylvania. Well, with nothing left to research, with all of his research avenues dried up, Dr. Wolf decided that he would move into the town of Rosetta. 
And he would study and pay attention to and observe the simple way that the Rosettan people lived. He noticed that it was not uncommon at all to have three generations of people living under one roof. And he noticed that although the men and women of the town worked hard, mainly in the stone quarry, which was the main employer there, they worked hard, they worked long hours, they seemed to always have time to stop and talk to one another in the street or to cook for one another in each other's yards. He noticed that all of the Rosettan people worshipped at one Catholic church in the center of town, and the priest in this Catholic parish had started 22 civic organizations out of this single congregation to serve the entire town of Rosetta. He noticed that the Rosettan people had an egalitarian ethos, an egalitarian culture that discouraged the rich from living any differently than anyone else. What Stuart Wolf concluded is still being taught in medical schools all around the world today. He shocked the medical community for by the first time proving that the Rosettans' physical health followed their relational health. Nobody had ever seen that connection before Dr. Wolf proved it. He proved that there is this vital connection between our physical health as human beings and the health of the relationships all around us. Rosetta was the healthiest community perhaps that we've seen in America over the last century physically because they were so healthy relationally. They got community and healthy community has that kind of impact on each and every one of us. I love that video clip that we just watched from one of my favorite movies, We Were Soldiers, in which Mel Gibson plays a general about to embark on leading his troops into the first skirmishes of the Vietnam War. I love what he says to his troops in the film right before they are to leave and go into battle. He says, look around you. Here, we're segregated. Here, we're divided. But when we move into battle, we're going to be a community committed to one another, watching each other's backs, and we will leave no man behind. There's truth in those words. There's truth in that script. It's the truth of 1 Corinthians 11. It's the truth of Dr. Stuart Wolf's research that the cross creates communities, that you and I, by virtue of being human beings, are hardwired to experience healthy communities all around us. Another reason I love that video clip is it kind of reminds me of this time of year. Mel Gibson sells, tells the troops we are moving into the valley of the shadow of death. And as we move into Holy Week in just the next few days, uh, it always feels that way to me. It feels like moving into the valley, the shadow of Jesus' death. There's a sense in which the Gospels, the New Testament, that tell the story of Jesus are in a rush to get to the valley, the shadow of Jesus' death, to get to Holy Week. In fact, roughly half of the gospel material, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is dedicated to this last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and resurrection where all he has been doing so quietly in the small backwater towns and villages of Galilee is suddenly graphic and bold and put on public display in the capital city of Jerusalem. Prior to Holy Week, there's a sense in which Jesus' ministry is virtually understated. Jesus tells those who he touches and who he heals, don't say anything about it. Jesus whispers about his true identity only to his closest followers. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, stays in these backwater villages way out of the main parts 
of town. Jesus teaches in parables and cryptic language that's hard to pin down. But suddenly, when we get to Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life in which he first institutes the Lord's Supper, the tables are turned and Jesus is in your face in a really big way. Suddenly, he's riding into the capital city on Palm Sunday on a parade route. Messianic acclamations are being shouted at him from the road. Blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Suddenly, Jesus, who was quiet and understated before, is now going into the temple with a whip, driving the merchants out, ceasing the entire business of the temple with his authority. Suddenly, Jesus is thought to be a dangerous man. He is arrested by an armed mob with swords and clubs, not knowing if he will resist violently. Suddenly, Jesus is killed in the most graphic and public way imaginable on Holy Week, dying, screaming his words out, his final words to the entire city in full view. And yet in the middle of Holy Week, in the middle of all this graphic and bold and public display of Jesus, there is a centerpiece that completely takes us off guard. There's a centerpiece, there's a moment when everything is like the way it used to be before Jesus marched in to the city of Jerusalem, there's a centerpiece, a time, a moment of old times, a moment of quietness, a moment of conversation, a time of laughter and reminiscing and sadness that must have cut the air dry. I'm talking, of course, about communion, the Lord's Supper, the last time that Jesus sat down and shared one final meal with his disciples. You know, even in our society today, it's common for the media to report on a condemned criminal's final meal. Have you ever seen that on the news before? We just recognized, even among those who have committed heinous crimes, we recognize that there's something sacred about anyone's last meal. And this was Jesus, the perfect Son of God. Jesus sitting down and having one last meal with those who he loved most and those who loved him most. One last meal with those who he had invested his whole self in and they in him for three years. One last meal for those that he was leaving. Wouldn't you give all you had to have been there and to know what they talked about, laughed about, and reminisced about the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples? I bet you've seen enough paintings of the scene, especially da Vinci's famous one, to scan the room in your mind's eye, in your memory. There is Peter, loud and passionate, obviously dominating the conversation around the Last Supper table. There is James, the son of thunder. He's intense. He's brooding. He's had the sense that something is going down here quicker than he can come to terms with what it is. There is Judas, fearful and paranoid, his eyes darting around the room, caught up in the great drama of Holy Week that will lead to his own ultimate end. There is young teenage John reclining against the chest of Jesus, the scripture says. There is Thomas, the doubter, who has known that this day was coming, and he's known for a long time that things we're about to get really dark. Can you see them surrounding the table of the Lord for that last meal together? Can you see them? I know in the paintings, they're always sitting upright on one side of a long table, but actually in Jesus' day, they would have been reclining on the ground. The table would have been perhaps six inches off the ground. And they would have reclined at the ground with their feet out and their heads pressed in like that. And I wonder in that moment with their heads pressed in around that table as they ate and talked together, I wonder if it dawned on them that after three grueling years, Jesus had finally made a community out of them. 
You know, it had taken about three years to just get them to the point where they could have a meal together without a fist fight breaking out. Three years of community building where they could sit down and be a family together. Maybe this is what this church thing that Jesus has been talking about all this time is all about. They thought to one another with their heads pressed around the table, the candlelight flickering on their faces. Jesus had told them for some time now that they were about to move into the valley of the shadow of death. But even that seemed bearable around the table, a community with Jesus at the center. And as the scripture says, for this sacred meal, Jesus did something which he had never done quite this way before. They were accustomed to him, I'm sure, taking the bread and blessing it, praying the Jewish blessing over it, distributing it to them. But this time he held the bread longer with tears in his eyes. And he said something that he had never said before, take and eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. And then in the same way, he poured the wine into a single glass and he passed it around to them and said, this is my blood of the covenant. Do this whenever you drink it. Did you catch that in 1 Corinthians 11? Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you drink it, that shows us that communion in its early stages was not some little formulaic thing that we tag on to the end of a worship service like we typically experience it. Instead, Jesus is saying, whenever you drink it, do this. When, whenever you sit down to the table, remember me. Keep eating together, Jesus was saying. And whenever you eat together, don't forget. Don't forget. That's the temptation to forget. Don't forget me. Jesus said there was some fear in the back of our Lord's mind that thought he might be forgotten by history. Remember, Jesus was saying, remember me. Remember what we've been doing all this time. Remember this community that we formed together and that God has formed in us. Everything about this dog-eat-dog world that I'm sending you out to, Jesus would say to his disciples, I think, will try to convince you that true community is impossible, so you just got to trust no one and fend for yourself. Don't believe that now. Remember me. Remember what we've accomplished together, because my mission is going to continue around tables just like this. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. Remember that real community is possible and your survival depends on the health of the relationships around you. When we get to this early Christian community in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's pretty remarkable because this early church is as far from the ideal of a healthy community just as Jesus' disciples were when he first began to call them and to form them into a team. I'd encourage you sometime when you have a moment to read this letter of 1 Corinthians through in a single sitting. You know what you'll find? You'll find that this is a church full of really great individuals that want to be known as really great individuals. They were elevating the individual at all costs, and this had caused the church in Corinth, in Greece, to divide into factions that were boasting over one another. You had one group that were boasting over the fact that they were superior spiritually than everybody else. They were the most spiritual group, the group that was close to the Lord. You had other individuals in Corinth that were boasting about their superior knowledge. They claimed to be the most intelligent Christians in that community. You had other gr another group in Corinth that was boasting over the fact that they were more elite. They had wealth and social status than others do not have. Paul makes fun of them in verse 19 of our text by saying sarcastically, surely there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. 
And this heightened, unhealthy sense of individualism that we see playing out in the Corinthian church in chapter 11 was on full brash display when it came to celebrating communion. A few years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to meet and to hear lecture uh, the leading archaeologist that's been in charge of excavating the city of first century Corinth in Greece. And I know for most of you, that sounds like a big yawn. That sounds about as exciting as watching paint dry. For me and the world I live in, this is kind of like getting to meet, I don't know, the president or your favorite famous person. It's sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, I was so pumped to meet this archaeologist. He's my Indiana Jones. And to hear him lecture... And in his lecture, he began to illuminate the way that the early first century houses in Corinth were shedding light on how to best interpret what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. Now remember, we're centuries away from church buildings anytime we read the New Testament. The first church buildings don't really start popping up until about the 4th century. So the early Christians are still meeting in homes And apparently, the communion meal is an entire meal. It's not just cracker and grape juice, but it's an entire meal that people are are eating when they come together. Only in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, this meal is not promoting unity. It is promoting division. Paul says that some people aren't even getting anything to eat. Others are getting full. Others are getting drunk. What on earth is up with that? Well, in an ancient house in a town like Corinth, there were two places where a dining setting might be set up, might occur. The first was called the triclinium, and the triclinium was the formal dining room of an ancient house. And in the triclinium, it might seat 8 to 12 people around a table. Superior food would be served in the triclinium. Hired servants would be on the payroll to deliver the food. The triclinium in ancient houses, were, they were, it was actually heated in the winter and cooled during the summer. This was the place where you really wanted to eat. The other room where guests might be served food was the atrium. This was the large open room that you first entered into within an ancient house. But in the atrium, there might be no hired help to serve the food, and the food would probably be inferior. In fact, the atrium typically did not even have a roof. You were exposed to the elements in the open air. And so what seems to be happening in this early church is that the wealthier and more influential members of the Christian community there are living it up, drinking, having a great time in the triclinium, while the rest of the community is left out in the atrium alone where there isn't even enough food to go around. And Paul says in the passage we read, in the strongest terms, the strongest language possible, guys, you are not experiencing the Lord's Supper. This is not the Lord's Supper you eat. You're doing something that is flagrantly against the spirit of the Lord's Supper. Paul Paul even says, some of you are getting sick because of this breach of community. Is Paul saying that there's something magic in the elements of wine and bread? Not at all. I think Paul is pointing to what we already know from research today from Stuart Wolf. And that is, to lack healthy community is to suffer It's to suffer physically, it's to suffer emotionally, and it's to suffer spiritually. And in this passage, Paul calls this Christian community back to the formative Christian principle that the cross of Jesus Christ is not just about you, but the cross is about creating healthy communities of people. And I can't imagine a more relevant message to you and I living in the United States of America where the individual is elevated above all costs. Here we're an individualistic sort of nation, 
and society. And we're all about self-help and personal happiness. We've even translated the Christian gospel into your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And don't hear me wrong. Obviously, I think your relationship with God is personal, but it's not individual. It's not disconnected from the strength and the health of Christian community In the same way that Paul was calling the ancient Corinthians back to understanding the real meaning of the cross, we also are called to recognize that among all of our individualism, our true existence and our true strength is found in the relational health that God gives to us in the church. The cross creates communities. I want to ask our hosts to prepare the elements of communion at this time and to prepare to serve us. This morning, we're going to walk through one more time the rhythms of Holy Communion, where we remember that Jesus died for all of us, not just individuals, but Jesus died to create communities of people. This is an open communion, by the way. It's open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of our church or anything like that in order to receive communion. I only ask that you reflect on the significance of what's happening in this ceremony that you reflect on how God wants to transform you and to speak into your relational health. The elements are going to be passed out in just a moment. As they do at the bands, going to lead us in worship. Please hold on to the elements, and we'll partake together when I come back up. Gentlemen, will you serve us? The elements that you hold in your hand, I think they ask of us a very simple and direct question every time we take them. And the question is this, what's the relational health in your life look like? If you had to score that, if you had to review that, what's that look like in your life? Are there relationships that are broken and it is within your power to mend them? Are you moving forward in the mending process? Are you lonely? Are you disconnected? Jesus died just for that. Jesus died to create a healthy sense of community and healthy relationships in your life. He spilled his blood to create communities of people that get it right. This is what Henry Nouwen said in his book, Life of the Beloved, a great Christian author and Catholic priest. He said, when we eat together, we are vulnerable to one another. Around the table, we can't wear weapons of any sort. Eating from the same bread and drinking from the same cup call us to live in unity and peace. This becomes very visible when there is a conflict. Then eating and drinking together can become a truly threatening event. Don't you think that our desire to eat together is an expression of our even deeper desire to be food for one another? I think that our deepest human desire is to give ourselves to each other as a source of physical, emotional, and spiritual growth. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 26 says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it and broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, for this is my body. Let us take of the bread. And he took the cup, gave thanks, passed it out to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us receive it. God, I pray that the message of your table and the meal that you have given us is a message that goes beyond the individual transformation that we believe you are working out in us. But that that message, that power, spills out into our relationships. May they be healthy, God. May they be life-giving. I pray for any members of this community that are lonely. I pray, Lord, that you would show them the energy that they have to take 
to connect to other people in healthy relationships. I pray that you do something powerful in them, in us. In Jesus' name, amen.